Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. My name is Mickey and I'm CEO of Exaptech, a robotics company based in Melbourne, specializing in assistive robots such as telepresence and educational robots. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Shauna Glover, my guest today. Shauna, welcome and thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Nikki, and very, very pleased to be here. Oh, it's great. I know you and I have had some um, hit and miss of when we think we could be talking. So it's always, it's doubly the pleasure to have you here. <laughs> well, we finally put it together. <laughs> yeah, of course, we, we're extremely capable, competent women. Well, we can we do it. <laughs> so you have a, a first class double degree in chemical engineering and science, as well as a doctorate in engineering. I mean, I just say that I'm, I'm already in awe. But you've had an amazing career, starting with BHP, where you were for 19 years. So what were career highlights for you there? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, working for a company like BHP, Nick, as you know, when you work for the big companies, the, the great thing about them is, is the diversity of roles that you get to do. So in 20 years there, people go, wow, you know, it's a long time to stay with one company. But I changed roles every year, you know, and often in a fairly extreme way. And so, you know, so it was like changing companies, you know, quite, quite regularly and such a great company to work for in terms of the opportunities that they, you know, that they gave you if you basically spoke up and, and were prepared to have a go. You know, and I think for me, I got to do so many global roles um, when I was with, you know, with BHPs. So I got to be at the operations and, and I got to do functional roles and got to work, you know, all around the world with just some really phenomenal, you know, phenomenal people, you know, and I got to work obviously predominantly in the area of technology, but also in the area of um, project management um, and business planning, which I guess they are skill sets that now I really am so grateful that I, that I have, you know, because yeah. they, they really stand you in good stead for, for no matter what you, what you do. I mean, I guess a couple of the, the highlights of some of the roles I did when I was there that I, I look on most fondly was um, when we, I was the person who actually got our Brisbane Remote Operating Centre, um, which is where we control our coal operations, our dispatch of our fleet and, and our coal processing plants for, for Queensland as well as for Hunter Valley Coal. And so I got that up into a, into a study and, and got that on the company's radar. And, and it took me three goes to do that. You know, I started that journey in 2004 um, in the organisation when, you know, we obviously remote operating centres were a twinkling in a lot of people's eyes. And so, yeah, it was just such a, such a phenomenal opportunity to be able to work across all the operations and see that, you know, that come into fruition and really deliver, you know, great safety and productivity for, for the industry. And then the other one I did over the last few years with BHP was um, focused on open interoperable automation. So how do we have um, really good autonomous missions where we have a lot of our mobile equipment autonomous and, and working together on a, you know, a, a, a mission. And I got to do that work over in Arizona in one of our closed mines um, as a dem demonstration test bed. So working again with just people from around the world, particularly externally, 
you know, that that was kind of, as I grew in the company, I, I got to realise how much the company needed to tap in more to external groups and companies and research institutes rather than being, you know, obviously, you know, only looking within and only creating everything, you know, within the four walls of the company. So, yeah, just I've met so many people and, and over my journey and they're just such great network and great, great supporters of me today. Oh, it's fabulous. You know, and I think just listening to you for anyone that works in a company such as BHP or any large conglomerate is seize opportunity. And if you see their roles that you want to apply for, go for it. You know, like it's nothing, it doesn't, it means nothing that if you started in one position to do another thing and another, so what? Big deal. You can have 10 positions with the same company. It's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And and often, you know, so I either, as you said, applied for positions and sometimes I was doing my existing position and almost created my new position because I saw an opportunity that the company really should go after, you know, and I started to do that work at the same time as doing your day job, you know, and then the company went, well, hang on, we, you know, that we need to be doing that. Can, you know, move across and we'll stand up a role, you know, to do that. So, yeah, just that kind of frontier work and not waiting to be asked, I think is, uh, you know, certainly, you know, seek forgiveness, I always say. I'm, I'm sure people <laughs> in BHP senior management, I frustrated them quite regularly. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, have, have a go. Yeah, they go, what mischief is Dr. Glover now? Where yeah. is she? What is she doing? <laughs> that's that's about. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so a huge congratulations. You've just won the 2021 Exceptional Women in Technology Innovation Award. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. Following from career highlights, what, what have challenges been for you? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly one, I, I spend a lot of time talking to not only women, but, but men, you know, across the sector around work-life harmony. Um, and I don't call it balance because, like, I think you're just kidding yourself. Uh, but I always yeah. say, and, and I use the word harmony just because, as I said, in any week, you know, it's taken me a long time to recognise that this is going to be a more, you know, 60% work week and a 40% family week or, you know, vice versa. So work-life harmony is something that I think we all really, really struggle with. I've got um, three kids, you know, as well as, you know, obviously I'm an active horse rider and like to compete in my sport. And so, yeah, just trying to get that, that harmony is, is tough, you know, and, and so I've spent a lot of time speaking to people across the globe about it. And I always give them this little analogy. It's like the old, the, the stove, you know, it's got four rings on it, you know, and if you start thinking about one of them as being your work, one is your family, you know, one is actually your career and one is your health, you know, you've sort of got all these burners going at once and it's really about how do you get things sort of staying on the boil, you know, not bubbling over and, you know, but not going off the boil and, and really it is a, it is an act like that and sometimes, yeah, you've got to, got to ramp up your, you know, your career or, or your health. Like, as I said, you know, I think it's the burner that we all probably don't pay any attention to. I certainly didn't um, most of my life and too often you get a bit of a rude shock, you get a family member or, or your own personal health scare. So I think for me, that's probably one of the biggest challenges um, that I wouldn't say I have any, any answers to, but, but certainly have worked hard on that. And then the other one is really around just getting comfortable in your skin. You know, I think it's, it, you know, I certainly probably for the first decade or so in BHP, you know, obviously, you know, a fairly, particularly in those days, male-dominated industry. And, and I sort of, you know, always felt a little bit like the odd wheel out. And it took me a while to recognise that, yeah, I am different. And, 
you know, I am chatty and, you know, and, and I have a different way about delivering things and, but that's not wrong. It's just diverse, you know, and, and, and to use, you know, use that diversity. That's an interesting point you make, Shauna, you know, there's getting comfortable in your, in your own skin because, I mean, I know you're aware of imposter syndrome. I hate the phrase myself. I just mm. go, oh, please, just put this thing to bed. But it's something particular that women really suffer from and they, they may be just a little bit more open. I think men also had it, but, but women actually articulated that they feel like. And the really interesting thing is that I've spoken to such highly qualified women that are, you know, like I just look at them and I just go like, I don't even know what you're talking about, you know, like, and they say, oh, you know, they didn't feel good enough. And, and I actually, you know, I wonder about this. I think this should be knocked out of everyone from a very young age. You know, you should get up in the morning, you should look at yourself and you should just go, listen, I'm doing the best I can. I'm actually okay. And off you go, because it actually damages us. And I think especially women, it really, it, it does us no favor. Yeah, no, I think, um, and it's interesting that you talk about imposter syndrome. I did a um, women leadership course. It was a, I think it was a Queensland-based one, might have been national. Um, it, it ran for a few years and it was um, not within our industry. I joined a bunch of women, um, you know, one of the most senior uh, women constables in the police force, you know, a woman heading up the fire brigade. It was a real mixed um, cohort. And it was a really interesting, it was obviously a, a women's leadership course, but it particularly focused quite a lot on, on imposter syndrome. Didn't really call it too much that, but they spoke a lot about um, the, the little birdie on your shoulder, um, you know, so that kind of constant inner critic, you know, that often goes off in, in our head. And I don't know, I don't live in anyone else's head, let alone a male head, so I don't know what, <laughs> what yeah. happens in their head. But, but I certainly think in women, it's quite active. That, that little inner critic. And what I liked about this course is it really taught us to um, love it, like recognise it, you know, love it and, and put it to bed. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of, it was kind of this weird kind of, at least it gave me a mental model, I guess, to walk mm -hmm. around and when that inner critic comes up in you, you know, you can talk to it there on a the show and go, look, I, I'm, I hear you, but I kind of think you're out of line. You know, that's, I am well enough, you know, capable for this job and, and almost just a way to, to recognise it and, and deal with it and, you know, and, and move forward. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think tools and techniques that I've certainly picked up through others and great leadership courses have been really helpful. Yeah. Um, for that for that reason listen I agree with and I think I think first and foremost if you don't take yourself seriously and you and you go into a room and you're really apologetic like people won't take you serious you know they you just go well I'm here this is what I've got to offer take it or leave it and um, you know clearly we're all doing our best so for any any ladies out there that are struggling with this put this little birdie to bed on your shoulder <laughs> and tell it to stop squawking <laughs> Good call. Good call. <laughs> so you're co-founder of Embella and you're director of the company. Tell us about the company and uh, what do you specialise in? Yeah, so Embella is actually Zulu for e um, ecosystem because um, people often ask me where the, where the name comes from. So we're a technology ecosystem company. And the reason we, we do that is, I guess, long time in the mining industry have seen technologies get applied, but very much in a bespoke way. And so really what we're trying to do is um, in, in all industries, we do work in agriculture and, and space, forestry, is to bring in technologies, but in a, 
um, integrated way and with system-based thinking, you know, and that probably comes from me being a chemical engineer by background. We tend to be process or, or system-based thinkers. So, and really focused on, you know, how do we automate value chains? So how do we, you know, turn these, what is, you know, unit operations that today often in a lot of industries, particularly mining, are, um, are not integrated um, and, and, and are very bespoke. How do we actually start using technology but applying it in that more system, you know, system-based approach. And obviously we do a lot um, in the area of robotics and automation. Um, it's, it's a particular passion of mine and, and a particular passion for, for Australia and our capabilities. So we do, a, we do a lot in the automation space. It's quite interesting because, I mean, as you would know, that Australia, about out of 38 countries, we rank 31st in our adoption rate of robotics. So um, are you seeing an increase or a change in, in this, this that? Yeah, sadly, I think, as you know, Nikki, our, our stats have gone backwards, mm -hmm. you know, over the last few years, we continue to, to drop in our world rankings of, of use of robotics. So, um, but we're trying very hard to get it up on the agenda. I think there's, um, people often say to me, you know, why are we not a, a big uptaker of it? I think we are sometimes fraught with being an island country and so we don't always even recognize what is going on in the the rest of the globe and get a bit isolated so i think there's a bit of a lack of knowledge around robotics what is out there what is capable you know and 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 what we could already be using um and and i think like everything there's also been a fairly strong fear factor around loss of jobs mm. um has been a, a strong narrative that we've seen here in australia and you know, I mean, it, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, yeah. the data shows that as you uptake robotics, you actually generate jobs, you know, because you're going to generate people who are going to produce those technology solutions as well as people who are going to need to maintain them in the in the field if you're out at an operation. So, so it actually correlates positively with a, a jobs generator, but I think it has... It has been a concern across Australia that it would take away people's jobs. So people have been a bit reluctant, including companies, I think, to adopt robotics. Yeah, you know what, I think it's an ongoing education process, such as people as yourself, myself, dealing in robotics to, you know, my, my speciality is telepresence, social and educational robots, and even hospitals that I've gone to, you know, I think the misconception again, the fear factor, people actually know absolutely nothing about robotics, and for me to explain to them like that a telepresence solution, it's assistive technology, it's there, so that someone that's based in um, Wangaratta can dial into the Melbourne hospital as an example without having to travel to see a loved one that's in ICU. It's as simple as that. That's what the assistive technology is about. Uh, absolutely. And when you look at some, I mean, I often talk to people about the QUT vision robotics, you know, with PEPA, the technologies that mm -hmm. they've developed that can be, as you said, an assistance in hospitals gee, I would really like it if I had, you know, my aged mum sitting on a ward to know that there's extra eyes walking through the floor to see whether she's, you know, fallen out of bed or whether the curtains are open or, yeah. you know, if she wants something, you know, can at least, you know, interact and, and you know, respond and, and seek further assistance if needed. So, you know, I see a lot of solutions that we've developed, but again, our ability to implement and commercialise here in Australia is, is at the moment still weak. You know, I'd like to see us focus far more on, on uptake of these technologies that we've got. Yeah. So you're the executive director of the Australian Robotics Network. So what's the vision of the organisation? 
Yeah, so Robotics Australia Network is a um, is a not-for-profit national um, entity that we set up really focused on um, advocacy for robotics because at the moment people don't even think of robotics as an industry and it is everywhere else in the world mm. but it's not here you know no everyone will talk about you know the mining industry or the oil and gas industry but robotics around the world is a recognized industry yeah. so really what we're focused on is how do we get it up and get it recognized as an actual um, opportunity for a new industry for for the country um, and, and so a lot of the work we're doing is around membership. So pulling together, there is a lot of great, like your company, a lot of great robotics companies out there, um, but they really don't have an alumni or a, you know, a group of, of like-minded people that they can actually work with. So very much focused, as I said, on that, that advocacy piece. We spend a lot of time with both federal and state governments, um, you know, advocating for robotics and for the recognition of it. Um, as well as obviously building capability in our company, member companies and, you know, in our, in our universities and TAFE and people who are going to be coming out with the required qualifications that we need. Yeah, I think that part of the problem is when you do census about anything and you look at the industries that they put forward, so I'll put, as you say, mining, agriculture, and what they'll do under robotics, it will be engineering, but robotics is its own class, it's not engineering, it's actually its own category, and it's nowhere it's recognized as such, and I find it really frustrating when I'm asked to fill in census, I go, but where's the robotics, like, how can you, how can you get information out of it's not even there? No, exactly. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I've got mechatronics guys working for me in, in Invelo and, they're, you know, they're not, when people, if they've been for jobs in industry, you know, you get HR saying to them, gee, what are you? Are you electrical or you're, you know, are you mechanical or, and they're like, no, mechatronics, you know, yeah. so, so there's yeah. just a whole heap of education that we need to be doing, I think, out there. Um, for people to understand robotics as a as an industry and as you said like us taking this uh, I guess more the old school siloed approach to industries like oil and gas and mining and that it actually inhibits technologies because yeah. industry 4.0 as we know those technologies cut across every industry so there's great robotics companies out there who their technology can go into an agricultural uh, application it can go into mining the the smarts and the you know of their technology is universal but um, they end up very fragmented because again they've got to shuffle themselves in you know in under a you know a, a specific industry like mining um, as opposed to it being recognized as a horizontal yeah. So in terms of like organisations out there, so we've got the Australian Robotics and Automation Association. Um, what else is there? And are they all are they all happy to fall under the Australian Robotics Network, or how are you managing the stakeholder process? Yeah. So we're. Um, I mean, there's there is some um, different uh, different groups. One you mentioned, um, you know, obviously does a lot of work with um, SMEs, hobbyists. Um, but probably it's not so much focused on membership and, and advocacy at the, at the national level that we are. So what we're doing is working with those groups. We've got the Queensland Robotics Cluster. Um, at the moment, there's a Robo West. So uh, WA will look to mobilise a robotics cluster as well. And so the whole idea of the national group is for those groups. They can absolutely, we don't want to dominate the universe. And, and, and you know, we, we need regionally and state-based groups to stand up and, you know, drive initiatives. And so the way I see it, it 
generally at those groups and at the state level, they tend to get a lot more closer to problem and solution. You know, they work with whatever industry groups are around them, you know, in terms of their challenges and where robotics can help. Whereas the umbrella of Robotics Australia group, as I said, can very much focus on more the national narrative. Yeah, listen, so to um, our listeners out there, there is actually um, a website available and I do encourage everyone very, very strongly to go and have a look at it. It's an absolute fabulous resource of um, events coming up, where you can find stuff, the who's who in the robotic industry. So that's the um, Australian Robotics Network website and you can actually subscribe uh, to the newsletter there and um, the form is to download there as well to become a member. Shona, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. We're um, we're doing our membership um, drive now, as I said, now that we've stood up the entity, um, a, a small fee really to, as I said, underpin the, the, the running and the advocacy, you know, the meetings we have with, with government on behalf of robotics industry. And so people can become a member and they'll see more of, as you said, we'll be starting to pull together some, um, some meetings, some Zoom meetings for people to be able to get to know each other some more the newsletters and then obviously we've got the large piece of work to deliver in the second half of the year on the roadmap. Yeah, so uh, we so that's uh, the Australian Robotics Roadmap for our listeners. There's a 2018 edition available um, on the on the internet, and we're just in the process of finalising the 2020, as Shauna mentioned. Um, Shauna, what do you think's been the best thing about this roadmap in, in terms of highlighting um, work done in robotics in Australia? Yeah, well, I think it's twofold. It, it, it works a lot on the industry sector sides to identify the opportunities for robotics. And so they can, you know, roadmap out by industry, you know, what are the challenges that robotics could, you know, could come in to support. And what that enables us as a country particularly is to start to recognise where the opportunities for growth, you know, in our own technology sector is. So we can build capabilities aligned with that, you know, with that roadmap. And one of the key things that comes out of it is a, a set of recommendations around what, you know, how should we be shaping the industry um, to go forward, the, the, um, even the uh, build of Robotics Australia Network, the not-for-profit, was an outcome from the recommendations of the 2018 roadmap. So, you know, so we take those recommendations and we act upon them, or if the um, Robotics Australia Network can't, then we take those recommendations and we start working with government to see what we can, um, what we can do to close the gap. Yeah, you know, um, I, I say to my guests, this podcast was actually as a result of the 2018 roadmap because Sue and I were chatting about it and she'd go, oh, do I know about these people? And I'd go, no. And i go, do you know about these people? And she goes, no. i go, well, that's it. I'm starting a podcast. So now everyone can know. <laughs> that's exactly right. It, 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 and, and as you and I know, it really is that kind of network of people, you know, across their, their companies and across R&D that we really need the industry to kind of integrate together more, you know, to be able to, as I said, share network and, and particularly share opportunities, you know, with, with solving some of these industry problems that today, you know, it saddens me that we continue to put people in harm's way when really there are a lot of robotics and automation solutions that could, could take them out of the line of fire. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's an ongoing education process. Like, you know, as I, was, I mentioned to you earlier, like continually just telling people that this is this is what these robots can do. This is what they're capable of. Um, I, it's, it's the education. You have to tell them. Have you got a bird in the background having a chat there? No, can you hear it? Beautiful, isn't it? That chirpy bird we spoke about. Are you 
that's outside my window. <laughs> Tell her to join the conversation. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so in terms of um, how COVID's affected our, our sovereign, you know, we, we established firmly in the midst of COVID, we're not a sovereign nation in terms of our, our capability. Do you think COVID sort of um, changed people's perspectives in terms of adopting robotics? Yeah, I, I think so. It, 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 I think we all know COVID's made many fundamental changes to the way we, we think about um, the way we do our work and, and business, the way we think about um, our supply chains, um, you know, sovereign security, you know, over those. But certainly when it comes to robotics and automation, that original either lack of knowledge or hesitation to apply it, we've certainly seen, you know, since COVID organisations realise that they want to be more resilient. You know, this won't be sadly the last pandemic. There'll always be something going on in the world. So how can we continue to, you know, be productive, you know, operate our, our you know, heavy machinery and mining and forestry and, and these places? So how do, we, how do we use robotics and automation for that? And as I said, at the same time, you know, grow, grow capability and grow jobs here in Australia on the back of that. So I think, you know, I, I can certainly see the tide changing, which I think would have been more glacial um, with, without COVID, a little bit like, you know, um, flexible work. Um, yeah. It was going at fairly glacial pace as well. Um, you know, no yeah. matter what companies did, you know, BHP was doing heat on trying to encourage flexible work, work from home. And, you know, it was just very hard to, to sort of break the ways of working, but COVID quickly changed these things. Yeah, sure enough, you know, and I mean, I, I was just looking at the adoption rate of technology because um, some of my robots are actually being utilised in hospitals now because the doctors are using them as a communication method with patients, you know, and before COVID, yes. as hard as I tried to break into the market, it was just a no-go, but sure enough, COVID came and uh, two or three hospitals in Australia are using this technology now. Yeah, nice. And well, as I said, you know, there's a, a classic example of where, you know, robotics can, as you said, you know, keep that um, that uh, continuity of care up, you know, but certainly obviously reduce the number of interactions that are, you know, required in a, in a COVID environment. So, so I certainly think, as I said, in mining, we've definitely seen um, seen an uptake in, in robotics and automation, particularly over the last year, as they've tried to operate um, out there at the mines with a lot, you know, lot less people needing to be on site they may still be obviously doing work but you know how can we actually minimize the amount of travel and FIFO and and that how can they do their roles by you know basically dialing into robotics and automated equipment yeah I think I wonder sometimes if people think they're missing out if they're not in the office you know I don't know what they're missing out on but I think it's also just the visibility of being seen so um, you know, and I think onboarding new people in um, a post-COVID situation where people are sort of working from home, there can be challenges with that because, you know, like with anything, you need trust to work with people. You need to get to know them a little bit. Um, there's a lot involved in trust. It's, you know, body language and, you know, just sitting and talking about your children, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there will be a balance about it that yes work from home but there will be times that you have to come in just just to keep that I think that um, human bond strong. Yeah I think I mean as I said uh, a lot of us you know like that you know obviously personal interaction with mm. people 
you know, grabbing, grabbing a coffee. I certainly grew up in, you know, 25 years of a career of doing that. But, but what's interesting is I've caught, I've met a couple of people only last week, actually, for the first time ever that I've had an 18 month strong Zoom uh, friendship, you know, colleagues yeah. working together on, on things. And, and it's kind of interesting, like we, we built such a strong rapport, yet I'd never met them, you know, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, I'm almost 50. And so the, you know, you learning to use the tools and trust them, you know, but I often do wonder, I've got three teenage um, children and mm. almost adults now. And, you know, I think these, these things for them will be less of a challenge because they, you know, they didn't grow up in the ways of working we did where you do always have to, to front yeah. up into the office to build relationships. They're quite comfortable to build relationship over, you know, Zoom or whatever other social media my kids are using. But, yeah, so I, th- I think you're right. But I think we need to recognise that people do like to still get together, you know, and, and, and spend time in the office together. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's actually, you know, I think actually it's essential that they do because there's a different style of communication with over the phone. And, you know, like if you're having a conversation, you don't even say hello and goodbye, you know, you just sort of pick up the thread where while the youngsters talk like this, they don't, there's no hello or goodbye, you know, I'd style, oh, hi, Sean, I like, because, you know, I've been raised with some manners, but it's not, it's not a sign of bad manners to them. This is just how they communicate, you know, and it's a very interesting, there's a book, actually several books written on it on the Gen Y. And, and the Gen Zs and how they communicate and um, you know when they're suddenly thrust into an office environment that they're actually quite um, they don't actually know how the ins and outs of just you know the social social, social norm yeah and cues <laughs> like and what you're supposed to do with all of this yeah no I think I think that's exactly um, right and I think you know the social platforms like these lend themselves very well to one-on-one a bit more but once you do move into more group-based settings they do get um, awkward because as you said it's it's really when you come together as a team you know it's just so much easier to pick up on those cues and work together when you're when you're face to face and when you try and get a group of people over zoom it does tend to get quite you know um, uh, genderized and quite formal It, it really has no other no yeah. other way to go. So I agree. There's a there's a time and the place, and you see a lot of companies now nominating a, a for team what their day if it's Wednesday. Yeah. That's the day the team all comes into the office and you know gets that kind of you know I suppose yeah forming storming norming performing. Yeah. Um, you know that that I talk about that I I don't think easily that model holds on trying to do it all on um you know on on social you know on social platforms yeah on zooms and things so yeah. so Shana if you look back at your career you know you mentioned your age now as a as a nineteen twenty year old do you think you're very different from the person you were then to the person you are now oh. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all, we all, what do they say, you change every every seven years. I think um, as, as a young person, I was always had a lot of drive and, you know, a lot of ideas, you know, in my work. But I guess it's taken me a lifetime to recognise that it is good and okay to sort of slow down a little, um, but also to make sure that you've got a team around you and coming with you you know, on the, on the journey, you can only, I'm an explorer um, uh, through the Belbin profiling, if, if anyone's ever done Belbin. And so, yeah, so I'm that sort of like head out there on the frontier type person. But I think it took me a long time to realise that you can end up out there and you look back and there's no one behind you. You've left, yeah. you've left the whole team behind and, yeah. you know, lone, lone rangers, you know, might, 
might set some inspirational ideas, but you can't execute without a full, you know, a full complement and a team around you. So, so certainly, you know, now I, I, I spend a lot more time trying to, you know, trying to just, you know, working with others and, and get us all in, you know, hunting as a pack, you know, in the, in the one forest. Yeah. So uh, mentors for you over the years, I, I'm thinking you a mentor for many people, but who's been a mentor for you? Yeah, I love I love mentoring, but I've been so um, so lucky. Uh, I, I started working for Megan Clark, um, gee, back in two thousand and three or two thousand and four um, in BHP when she was um, the vice president of technology, and she's been just kind of a, a mainstay for me over twenty odd years. You know, she's um, gone ahead of me a little more, obviously in age and with her her kids and family and career, and so she's just always one of those people has had the right advice at the, at the right, at the right time. Um, and she's so entrepreneurial, you know, in the way she works, but, but delivers through others. So she's been just a, a great mentor. And then also um, Glenn Keyes, who's the executive chairman of Aspen Medical. Um, Glenn and I are a pretty well family. And so he's been a, a mentor for many years. And, and again, you know, what a, phenomenal uh person and story you know to to be an australian startup sort of whatever 15 years ago as for medical was you know i'm predominantly do a lot of offshore work you know um and then obviously they they did a lot of work fighting ebola and now um now the the covid um pandemic so yeah and and he so he, it's different mentors you need for different things like yeah. you know megan hasn't done her own company she's always worked in you know, big companies and um, Rothschild, WMC, BHP. Now, obviously, she's been the CEO of, of the Australian Space Agency. And then whereas Glenn's, you know, built his own business, you know, so I, I, you tend to go to people for different different sets of advice depending mm. on their, their experience. Yeah, you know, I, I ask this question of all my guests and I, I really try to get the message out there to younger um, you know, school kids and, and people early in their careers, it's actually essential to have mentors. Do not underestimate how, how much advice you can take from people and actually actively look out for people that can mentor you. Um, I was chatting to someone um, the other day and we, we actually came upon the idea that all year 12 students, actually maybe even year 11, because year 12, you're pretty, you know, full on with VC and stuff, but that even from year 11, you start actually identifying um, mentors out there, and we should actually have an organization. Shauna, this is where you and I are going to get together and do this stuff. <laughs> uh, next week. Um, yeah, I next week because we've got just so much time. Um, is that, that schools can actually um, get us in to come and speak? I know there are lots of organizations where, you know, they've got um, robot gals and all these, mm -hmm. you know, sort of um, STEM things, but specifically to, to get a picture into people's minds and young girls, boys as well, but particularly young girls in the field of STEM like how important it is what subject you choose at school in which case we'll go back to year seven because that's where they start making these decisions but you know if you if you go down um a stem career and get those subjects it's fine you can flip into humanities but it's very difficult flipping the other way you know if you've chosen humanity subjects and then in year 12 or first year out of school you go oh that's i want to become a nurse well you haven't made the right decisions here in mm. terms of your subjects yeah, no, that's and I think you're right, Nikki, about the getting in sooner in the school systems. I was talking to Ian McFarlane 
um, from the QRC. Uh, last week we were at a breakfast together um, and the QRC has always run a great um, uh, STEM program, you know, particularly obviously uh, helping young people in year 11 and 12 understand STEM and opportunities, particularly in the resources sector. Um, but we were talking a lot about how those, I've seen it with my kids, you know, they, as you said, they're, their decisions are, are really formed in that year seven, year eight, um, you know, sort of period in their life. After that, they've they've kind of started to make their their choices. So, how do we connect them with the, um, you know, the type roles and work that is out there? Because their teachers and their um, advisors only can know so much. I mean, gee, we all yeah. do only know know so much. But often they're not as connected with the, the type of work that is out there that goes with certain, you know, certain qualifications. So I was talking to someone from UQ, University of Queensland the other day, who's tackling this very problem with a not-for-profit. They're looking to stand up a, a group, which is how do they start to um, adjunct careers advisors, you know, particularly early in high school, to actually, you know, for us to sit on Zoom or Teams type yeah. platforms, sit with um, the careers advisors, other teachers and, and students. And so rather than us having to be limited by how far we can drive, which is I've done a lot of the QRC um, programs where you drive to the schools and talk to the kids and that's great. But, you know, as I said, we could probably get a much more scalable solution um, to help out in our schools if we um, if all of us gave some of our time. You know, I think that's a brilliant. Maybe they can put it on the Australian Robotics Network. They can have a subcategory the mentors that have mm. to talk to schools. Um, you know, and I think particularly, um, I was talking to Donna Rezazadegan, who's one of the STEM superstars. She did the Melbourne Robotics Meetup Group for uh, the Melbourne Women in Robotics, Melbourne, the other day, and she was saying, um, like in context, even she has again this imposter syndrome, which I just find, uh, you know, she just is saying like, uh, you can listen to it. It's on on the, um, it's available. But uh, she actually goes to school, and the STEM superstars actually go and speak to the girls at school to say to them, and she had to put it in context to say to them, look, she's she's got a PhD, but it's building blocks. Like you're not going to start out as a PhD, but these little incremental little steps that you put into place that. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, like you, you do little things to go, this is the direction you're going in. Um, that that it, that kids at that age just go, oh, no, there's no ways I can do it. Because that's what they'll see when, you know, I, I'd imagine if you went in, they go, oh, no, look, they just, they can't emulate that. But that's exactly it is when you break down the path to them and go like, this is how you're going to do it. These little steps that you put in place. Yeah, and I think it's creating connections, as you said, Nikki, for some of the work they're doing. You know, the kids are learning, they're doing coding, you know, data, statistics and these mm -hmm. things. And, and you know, frankly, I remember, you know, it's pretty dry, you know, and yeah. so they don't, that it's helping them with that translation of, gee, what type of roles, you know, are people out there doing with these, you know, these skills? So uh, I, I think there is something missing there. And as I said, I often find the, the school teachers and that they just their own exposure to, yeah. you know, to what roles are out there is a little is a little limited. And so, you know, we lose them early on because they, yeah, they can't make that connection. What do I actually do with this? Yeah. Um, you know, do with this skill. Well, it's, I think it's an ongoing problem for um, for educators because, I mean, if you're going from school and you go to university and you go back into school because that's what teachers effectively do, they're not actually exposed to broader industries. So, 
I always think that that they should actually instead of going doing like an intern at a ship at a school where they're teaching, mm. they actually have to go into industry yeah. and they actually go have to go into a company so that when they're talking to children, I can go, well, when I was at BHP doing my internship mm. so that I can become an effective teacher to you, this is what I saw there. So, you know, it's a bit yeah, it's of a good, it's a, yeah, it's a good, good point. You know, yeah, they've got a lifetime to learn how to teach, but yeah, just that exposure it doesn't matter what company they would go to, but they would learn yeah. a, a cross sector, you know, sort of set of skills if they went, if they went out, it's a really good idea. Yeah. So I'm going to leave that to you. So you yeah, can yeah. implement that because <laughs> I, I come up with a bright idea. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> yeah. How to, how to move an education system. <laughs> a minor, minor little thing. Sean, I know you can do it. I'm watching you going, you can do anything. Yeah. So listen, in closing, do you have any advice for a younger Shauna? Oh, well, as I said, I think, you know, I always say to people, you know, be, be comfortable in, in your own skin, in, in your, in your colors, as I say, you know, the, the way that you like to work, you know, your own diversity and what you, what you bring to it, to a team, you know, and, and really, you know, have a go at putting your ideas out there and, you know, or the other thing I'm really passionate about is being the first follower. I don't yeah. know if people, I love the first follower movie or video that's on online. If you haven't looked at it, I've, I've seen that. That's good. Yeah. It, you know, and, and like people say, you've done some really good. And I was like, I wonder how many of those ideas were ever mine or how many often, just like you said about the education system, were someone else's, but I was happy to get behind other people's ideas yeah. and really, you know, take it forward and, and execute it because I think you know I think we all like to be out there with our own ideas and driving those but it actually is the validation that comes through other people getting behind ideas of others that I think actually you know really does deliver you know in in my experience so you don't if you don't think you've got you know heaps of bright ideas that's not a problem you know look for those around you who often have bright ideas but may not be so good at executing mm -hmm. um you know and getting behind them and be that be that first follower who's a terrible dancer on the hill. That's definitely yes. me. My dance skills are very poor. <laughs> we can work on it. That's, <laughs> I, I think it's a minor in terms of your accomplishment, Sean. So, so if someone wants to um, contact you, can I put your email address? Where's the best place for them to reach out to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, put my email address, but I follow all the all the channels. Obviously, LinkedIn seems to be the um, the best way for people to catch up with. I'm very responsive to to LinkedIn, but yeah, feel free to call me or or email me, um, whatever suits. Super, Shauna. I'm most appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And to the listeners out there, join me in a week's time for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Thanks, Nikki. Bye, guys. Mm -hmm.